we were scrambling last year to determine what is this going to look like? And honestly, Bill, it wasn't until we saw that final committee report that we knew what it was going to look like. And I suspect that's going to be even more the case this year. We're back with more Future Proof. And by the way, thanks for listening. I'm not sure I've actually said that before, but I mean it. Thank you. You guys are the reason we do this. You're the ones looking toward tomorrow. And and so let's let's figure this stuff out together, you and I, shall we? Okay, let's do this. I am your host, Bill Sheridan. Uh, and yeah, how about those midterm elections, huh? And, and I know what you're thinking. Don't even go there, Bill. You can't mention politics these days without somebody getting all bent out of shape about it, right? Well, not to worry, dear listeners. This is not a show about politics. Uh, this is actually a show about taxes. Uh, but here's the thing. Yeah, those two things, taxes and politics, they're, they're kind of joined at the hip right now, aren't they? And, and there's no getting around it. Uh, for the past two years, Republicans have controlled both houses of Congress and the White House. And that means it's been relatively, relatively painless getting things like, for example, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act signed into law. And so they have. Now we've got a divided Congress again. Democrats won control of the House on November 6th, which means it's not going to be quite so easy getting stuff passed. Further tax reform, for instance, President Trump says he's willing to work with Democrats on tax cuts for the middle class, even if it means raising the corporate tax rate. Uh, is that something he would have done uh, had control of the House not switched? And will Democrats play ball? Uh, uh, who knows? <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be interesting, to say the least. Uh, and that's just one example. So the timing couldn't be more right to welcome Carrie Weston to the show. Carrie is the AICPA's Director of Taxation. So she's got her pulse on the future of the profession in this area in a way that few others do. And she's got some terrific insights into what all of this means for tax preparers and for their clients. And we'll get to my conversation with Carrie in a minute. First, here's what caught my eye this week. It's a, it's a couple of reports, actually, about blockchain, uh, that decentralized, secure, distributed ledger technology that is the foundation for cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. The hype surrounding blockchain is, has been fairly through the roof lately. You've, you've heard some of that here, in fact. The reality hasn't quite measured up yet, but that hasn't stopped folks from speculating about what might be. Here's a fun little exercise. Google blockchain and taxes. Uh, you know what you'll find? Three of the first four results are white papers by big four accounting firms on how blockchain could transform the tax world. Uh, others say it has the potential to, to remake the IRS with, with huge cost-saving efficiencies. Uh, there's a Forbes article recently kind of provocatively titled, How Blockchain Technology Can Save the IRS. The author, IRA Financial Group tax partner Adam Bergman, says, quote, he says, the implementation of a private blockchain platform by the IRS can be transformational from a speed, security, and cost perspective. Private blockchain or distributed ledger technology, as referred to by the financial services industry, can make the IRS a more cost-effective and efficient regulator, end quote. And, and you see stuff like this all the time, people who kind of get starry-eyed over the disruptive potential of a new technology like blockchain. And I get it. If, if it ends up being half of what people are predicting, the opportunities will, will be practically limitless. There's a, there's a reason why the AICPA is investing so much time and energy uh, in studying this technology. They've partnered with Deloitte and CPA Canada and the University of Waterloo to study the future of audit if blockchain turns out to be as disruptive as, as many predict it will. Uh, and they're working with CPA.com and the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance to map out a strategy for the advancement 
of blockchain technology within the accounting profession. So you got to be ready if this thing turns out to be the next big thing. The key word there, of course, being if. Uh, see, blockchain success stories at this point are kind of few and far between. There's some there's some really interesting stuff being done in the supply chain area, tracking, for instance, food from source to table uh, as a way of limiting the damage caused by foodborne illnesses like E. coli and salmonella and, and whatever's impacting the romaine lettuce uh, supply <laughs> lately. Uh, beyond that, though, you know, the jury on blockchain is still out. Uh, here's what Bloomberg Businessweek's Olga Kareth or Karif has to say in an article titled Why Blockchain Blockchain's Salad Days Aren't Quite Here Yet. She says, quote, according to a study by PricewaterhouseCoopers, only 15% of global companies have a live blockchain project, while only another 10% are testing the technology. Forrester Research estimated that 90% of corporate blockchain experiments won't make it into corporate use. One problem is that blockchains are still slower than they need to be. Integrating blockchain with legacy software systems can be complicated and costly, and getting companies to cooperate in an industry-wide blockchain is proving to be a tall order, end quote. So yes, uh, absolutely, pay attention to blockchain. It could end up being a game changer, but just understand that there are a lot of unknowns out there and and a lot of challenges to overcome. Uh, The lesson here, I guess, is that this hype about blockchain is mostly theory at this point, so don't get carried away and be sure to temper your expectations a bit. Want to know what's not theory? Uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. How, how is that for a transi- <laughs> transition? And Wayfair and, and the midterm elections. These are disruptions that you can count on. These are hard trends. And my guest this week, Kerry Weston, takes a deep dive into what we need to know about these things as tax season creeps ever closer. Uh, There's a lot to take in here, so buckle up and take notes. Here is Carrie Weston. So, Carrie, we have a divided Congress now, thanks to those midterm elections. How does the dynamic now change uh, because of that for for further tax reform? That's a really good question, Bill. So, you know, we hadn't seen tax reform since 1986. And last year, there was a massive push before the end of the year to get tax reform through. And the benefit of that was that the Republicans had the House, the Senate, and they obviously had the president. So with them having all of all of the cards, they were able to push something through, albeit after a year of working through Congress and, you know, and us expecting something earlier in 2017 than we saw, um, it all really came to a head and to a close in the last month of 2017. So even with all three of the, you know, the, the all lined up together with the same party, um, they weren't able to nail down as much as they wanted. And, and really, I think the key is that what they were really aiming for, which was the, the lowered corporate income tax, the increase in bringing businesses back, I feel like all of the, my opinion is all of the individual provisions were sort of thrown in at the last minute Mm -hmm. Um, without any democratic consideration. It was all the Republicans did it under a budget reconciliation act. They didn't need the 
the, the people across the, you know, across the aisle to help them. So where we're at now, the reason I say that is where we're at now is we just saw the Democrats took over the House. Um, the Senate maintains the, they have the majority in, uh, the Republicans have the majority in the Senate, but they don't have the 60 votes that are required um, to push something through without blocking, um, you know, without a filibuster block from the Democrats. And then of course, so now with, we've got this Democratic House, we, we have, we maintain a Republican Senate. And then of course, the, we've got a Republican president who has the right of veto. So, you know, now what we're looking at with this dynamic is we have a group that last year, when we were asking for clarification on tax reform, when we were asking for them to possibly make some changes, to go back, to clarify, to provide guidance, a lot of the feedback that we were hearing was, well, you didn't ask our opinion when you wrote this tax law, so why are you asking now when you want to correct it? Mm -hmm. And I'd say now we're right in the middle of that. So I, (laughs) I guess what the dynamic is, is that you know, we have this this Democratic House. They want to come in. They definitely want to make changes to the tax law. Uh, we've got the Republicans, including the president, who say that there do need to be some changes made to the tax law, um, in, including even possibly, and the and the president held firm on this in the beginning, is raising that corporate tax rate up just a little bit, um, and in trying to give something to the middle, you know, more of a tax break to the middle class, because where we saw the tax breaks was clearly the permanent tax break on the corporate side and the high income individuals and the really lower income individuals. And that middle class didn't get what I think they were expecting. So everybody is on board with that. The issue is going to be whether or not they can come together in agreement to do this. And the things that are working against them are obviously the history of this bill, um, the political climate that's going on right now, the fact that it's a you know we do have a lame duck session um, we're going into, and then we're also heading right into the 2020 election season. Mm-hmm. So I know that was a really long winded answer, but it just <laughs> felt like with the history, you know, this yeah. all came to be with the Republicans having control of everything. They just did it. Yeah, and it was it was a little contentious, and now that they've got to negotiate, it's it's changing the terms, and and everyone has to work together with some some similar interests, but also a lot of divided interest. Right, it's right. going to be interesting, Bill. the The answer is nobody really knows at yeah. this point. It's certainly going to be interesting. They do have some some common desires, but they have a lot that are not. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, let's let's start with the things that you know. On the positive side, what what are some of those those common desires? Is there any kind of common ground here where where Congress can, uh, you know, actually accomplish something rather than just get mm-hmm. stuck in in that kind of divided Congress gridlock? Exactly. Well, you know, there what we're hearing is that there's definitely bipartisan support of some ad, some IRS administration package. Um, the IRS, you know, we've been talking about the IRS needing to have money to provide better service to the taxpayers, to the tax practitioners, you know, to infrastructure, technology, service lines, operations. Both sides of the house are in agreement on that. There doesn't seem to be any real issues. Um, there were also some, there's support on both sides to get some extenders, some things that are going to be coming up and there aren't a ton, but you know, at the end of every couple of years, there are things that renew. They seem to be on the same page with regard to extenders and getting those passed before long. There's even some discussion or there's some commonalities in getting some technical corrections on the tax cuts and jobs act. So there, there are definitely areas where, um, 
you know, they're, they're in agreement, they want to do it. Um, but just because they're in agreement doesn't necessarily mean that they will agree mm-hmm. and that they will push it. Right. So what we're, what we're really, you know, we're expecting that there actually could be uh, a tax package that's, that's passed before the end of the year. But, you know, if you look at last year's tax, tax packages, we had a house bill and we had a Senate bill. There were some significant differences between the two. Then we come out with a committee and a conference report at the end that picked up some, not others, and that ended up um, with some new things being thrown in at the last minute. So we were scrambling last year to determine what is this going to look like. And honestly, Bill, it wasn't until we saw that final committee report that we knew what it was going to look like. And I suspect that's going to be even more the case this year. Primarily because there will need to be a lot of negotiations, even on these issues that they agree about. So there could be technical corrections. There could be extenders where both sides are in agreement that they want to have something done. But it's entirely possible that um, you know something unrelated to tax could keep a tax provision from moving forward if they're in the same bill. For the time being, though, we still have the the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act deal with. Now, what what are some of the most important things that CPAs need to know about this law now? As we're, I mean, we're heading into tax season, right? So, uh, what do they need need to know about about tax reform that's that's going to impact how they do their work this year? So, you know, the, there was a, a substantial amount of change, and as we talked about, it all happened at the end of last year. But it was going to be, you know, unless they were looking forward in planning work, oftentimes in the practice of tax, people wait to learn the new tax law until right before the tax season, right? So they come in, um, in right now, they're going to come in in November, December, even January to get their tax law updates. And what we hope is that they've been paying some attention throughout the year and they aren't completely surprised. But I would say, you know, some of the biggest things that we're seeing happening are, around um, obviously itemized deductions, having conversations with their clients about the substantial changes and just honestly a basic individual 1040 return. An average client with something as simple as you know W-2s, home mortgage interest, state and local tax, charitable contributions, uh, and maybe that person is a, you know, a teacher or a police officer or they're a consultant that has out of, you know, pocket expenses and home office expenses, they could be significantly impacted by the new tax law. So I think part of it is just really understanding all of those changes that happened and communicating them to their clients because there are going to be clients that aren't happy about it. Um, So obviously some of the simple things like that, um, you know, a lot of this, the tax software is going to figure it out, but the, you know, the, the limits, some of the limits have the limit for the cap on itemized deductions has gone away. The AMT threshold has gone up. So these are all good things. You know, they're going to find out when they prep the return. They don't necessarily need to know. But what I think they're going to be surprised about is particularly when it comes to this new deduction for the pass-through entities. It's a, it's a hot item. In fact, I'm at a conference right now and there are several topics, uh, speakers, speakers, on this topic of, we call it the Section 199 Cap A deduction. It's the pass-through deduction. And that was created to level the playing field for pass-through entities because of the corporate tax break. Mm -hmm. So corporations got the flat 21%. They repealed the AMT tax for corporations. And, you know, so the, the idea was, well, let's come up with something to try and 
give an equivalent break to entities that are formed as a partnership, LLC, S corporation. So we're going to create this, except it's so complicated. It's, it's new, it's complicated, it's unclear. And even where they have released proposed regulations and, and guidance, um, you can ask four people that are experts, you know, in the tax area to give you the explanation of what they think that guidance may be. And you're, likely going to get three to four different answers hmm. as to how they interpreted those proposed regulations. So one of the biggest issues is in impacting our our members, our service, you know, is a specified service business provision that says you can get this deduction unless you're a specified service business. And so it was an idea of really when we come back to just the political climate was create jobs, right? Create mm-hmm. jobs, create business, bring business back to the United States. So let's cut the corporate tax. Let's tax the foreign earnings to try and encourage them to just bring their cash back into the U.S. And so if we want to really level the playing field and we pass that through, you know, the thinking is we're going to give these credits to these pass-through entities that are creating jobs. But the I think the argument against the speci- for not giving it to the specified services is the theory that service businesses don't create jobs, okay. uh, which which I find very interesting considering that we're really not a manufacturing co- country anymore, right? right? I mean, we right. don't create a lot of things here. We are a service country. So I just disagree with that in principle. I think that we create a lot of service jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, but the I think what's even harder for some people to swallow is understanding what is a specified service. So, you know, what does that mean to be a specified service business? And, you know, it's tied to reputation. Is it tied to licensing? Is it tied to years in business? What if you have a bad reputation then? Does that mean you don't, you're not, a, you know, you, you don't have to be limited to this? So right. it's vague. So obviously a, a lot to digest there. Um, what's happening in the profession? What are you, what are you hearing from from practitioners about, about tax reform and the impact that it's uh, having? Well, initially, it really was, we need guidance. Um, We're concerned because uh, specifically when it it comes down to this, like the cap 199, the pass-through deduction, they needed guidance on that. Meals of Entertainment, we got that. Um, The question really was, how do I sit down and plan with my clients? And we talk about entities. We talk about how you know to, to minimize taxes if I don't truly understand this. And we really hoped that by November, there would be more guidance than there is. So the concern is that we're down to two, less than two months left in a year for there to be guidance issued. And, and as we started this conversation with, we now have um, you know, a divided government. So we, our, our Congress is divided. We do know they have some incentive to work together, but it's going to be difficult. Um, we don't know what the answers are going to be. And so practitioners are trying to help their clients plan for what they can through the end of this year without with without that guidance. It's still yeah. it still doesn't remain to hasn't shown up yet. So the guidance is still missing. The other thing I think that's happening is in addition to that, we've got due diligence issues. So you know, the, in the past, obviously, you know, tax practitioners are held to due diligence standards by Circular 230, by their professional ethics. The AICPA, we have standards 
on code in our code of conduct. And in addition, we have the statements on standards for tax services and that specifically address what's your due diligence requirement. Mm-hmm. So what if, for instance, you have a client that comes in um, and they, this just, just came up is they increase the penalties and, and the documentation that's required for making sure that your clients are eligible for certain credits, certain refundable credits. And now they've thrown in head of household status. So Bill, you've been my client for 10 years now. And for 10 years, you've been a single parent and you've, you've been eligible for the head of household status. But when you came in every year, did I really, really make sure that you qualified under the tax law? For the head of household status? Did I ask the question about support? How about the child? Where did they live with you? Did I just take your word for it that mm-hmm. you were still eligible to claim that child and to claim the head of household status? So, you know, the onus now is being shifted over the burden onto the tax practitioner to ask those questions again um, or be subject to penalties because their client has taken a deduction they weren't entitled to and the practitioner didn't ask the right questions. Right, right. So, and you, it's, speaking of the, of the guidance that, that that is still missing, how are things coming on the IRS side? I mean, are they, is the uh, is the IRS pretty much on on track with implementing all the provisions in the new law, or or should we expect delays of of any kind? What what's the status there? So we're hearing that it's going to be coming out any day. I will say that the 199 Cap A proposed guidance came out much faster than we thought it did, but okay. it wasn't it wasn't as clear as as it could have been. So there's more to come. The other thing that there's a lot of concern around are just the the forms. So some of the forms and the computations and what they're going to look like and the IRS has issued so for this 199 Cap A, which like I said, is really the biggest issue, they we know that there's not going to be a form because the IRS can't get a form ready in time. So they said, we've created this simple worksheet. Here's a draft worksheet for you to take a look at and provide feedback. But the complicated worksheet, which is likely the one that will be used more often, hasn't been released, hasn't been created, and nobody knows what that's going to look like. And if that doesn't come out until close to the end of December for comments, people aren't going to have a chance to provide feedback if it doesn't make sense. Um, So we're hearing that will be released before the end of the year. Um, It will have to be released before tax season, but it's got to trickle through. I mean, we've got to look at it. The professional organizations... We've got to pass it along to the practitioners, the software providers. I spoke to a software, a large software company just last week, and and they're they're begging the IRS to get out more guidance because they can't write the code for their software, right. um, but they also can't wait. You know, so they're spending a lot more money getting their software ready with possible scenarios here. Um, and then waiting for those final forms. So it's going to be one of those, we're going to push right up to the end and there's going to be a mad rush is what I suspect. Down to the wire once again. Correct. Um, uh, Let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about Wayfair for a few minutes. So Mm -hmm. um, first, if you can boil boil it down, if you can boil it down to a nutshell, I'm not sure that that a a nutshell is is possible at this point, but but help me define our terms here. Tell me, what Wayfair is and why it's important. Okay. So historically, there's the there's been a tax, there's a tax case um, and public law that has said you have to have physical presence when you're looking at state tax. So I'm in the I am a I'm in business or I'm a CPA and I have to determine I have a client who's shipping their product into another state. Do they owe sales, use, and state income tax in that state? Right. So mm-hmm. it, ordinarily we looked at there was usually it's a three it's a three factor apportionment formula we'll look at is do they 
But the biggest one is physical presence. Do they have a physical presence? So do they have property? Do they have payroll? And do they have revenues into that state, right? So Mm -hmm. in the past, that has been the test is if they don't have some form of physical presence, and and that could mean a shipping facility, it could mean um, that they have sales reps that live in that city or state that could develop what we call nexus. So it was determining how they had nexus, which made the sales in that state taxable. So I'm a Texas business and I I ship out to Missouri. If I don't have any employees there, if I don't have a location there, if I literally just put something in a package and ship it to Missouri, the sales from that, that transaction are going to be taxed back to my home state. They're not going to be taxed in Missouri. I won't have a filing obligation in that state. However, with the way that business is going right now in South Dakota, um, a group of um, retailers that 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 sell online and and their products are delivered are delivered all throughout the, the country went in and said, you know. We, we shouldn't be taxed on this because we don't have a physical presence. And the courts actually came back and said, no, you know, it's not going to be about your whether or not you have a physical presence. You, you, your sale took place in the state. The buyer purchased it online in their computer sitting at home. It was an online transaction. It shipped to and was received in the state. And therefore, that state is entitled to tax that product. Hmm. And, you know, it's... It's a huge issue and it's really something, I mean, the the states have been trying to get on board and it has really complicated the profession because you have to know every year, I used to work years and years ago in E&Y's Corp Tax Division. And every year, one of my jobs as an early staff person was to go to every state and say, what is their what is their taxing policy for the state? Do they you know are they do they tax property? Do they tax revenue? Do they look at payroll? What percentage do they tax? Is it based on where it was shipped from, shipped to? And every state could do something different, and and they did. I mean, there were a lot of variations on that. So the upside is that if the states follow suit and there's more consistency, it can certainly be easier. Um, the concern is though that a lot of people are having state out-of-state sales and aren't currently filing in all of the states where they're conducting sales. Okay. So it's basically changed. It's It has the possibility to change the entire way that we think about sales, state income tax and sales and use tax on business transactions. Wow. Yeah. And, and so, so, and again, what, what are you hearing from particularly the folks who, who work in um, state and local tax? What um, what kind of feedback are you getting from them in regard to this? Mm-hmm. So the you know the issue right now is that, that you know this was in South Dakota. This is specific to this case. It's it's going to, it's it's upturned. Um, it's you know it's overturned what our traditional practice has been. Um, and so I think for them right now it's the uncertainty about what's going to happen. Yeah. And there's even some talk about the federal government coming in and issuing some sort of a federal law. And, and honestly, Bill, I I see the upside and the downside to that. And I've I've heard practitioners on both sides of it. You know, one in one sense is if there were just one consistent law that said, you know, wherever the sale either is shipped to or the sale derives from. So if I'm sitting on my computer and I'm working in DC and I order this from Amazon and I ship it to my sister-in-law who lives in Hawaii, if the rule says that, you know, it's where I ordered it from, then and that's consistently applied throughout all of the states, it would simplify it, right? right. Sure. Uh, so so there's a simplification simplification factor. The question is all states don't have to comply. So will they? 
Uh, how long will it take for that to happen? Will the federal government put some sort of law in and intervene? There are just a lot of questions. So I think what it does is, is it, it shifts things to something that could be very logical if it was applied consistently. But the, there are also concerns about, about that requirement being applied consistently. So in the, exa- in the exact same sense, it's, does that make sense? Um, if I'm a, if I'm a, you know, I'm a DC based vendor and all I do is ship sales. Why, if I don't have anything other than a business in DC, do I have to pay 20, do I have to file state, state returns in 50 states? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and adding to the complexity, I'm, I'm assuming, and, and, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but we're already starting to see or or probably will start to see fairly shortly some pretty significant movement at the state level yes to make sure that they're complying with that what are you seeing so far and and what's on the horizon there well you know there and i'm trying to recall which state it was actually it was just in one of the sessions this morning they were talking about one of the states that actually is actively going and taking some action and of course i cannot remember that right now but um i'm sure we'll all hear about it soon uh, I think it's not new to me. Uh, you know, I was around doing business back when, you know, like Orange County went bankrupt and, and I saw this massive rise in state and state revenue audits happen. And so it's, it's a money grab. I mean, if they think there's an opportunity for them to get their hands on some revenue, the, the audits are going to increase. I feel like that is what is going to happen again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and this was, you know, when the internet was first coming into play, this was in, you know, the mid, mid nineties, early two thousands, when it was sort of the, the internet came about, there was this big boom and then all of these state and local governments decided to go in and start auditing businesses to try and collect revenues. And it just, there was just a surge of audits and then it's sort of tapered off. I think that, I do think that's going to come back. And I, and I think it's going to create a lot of frustration for those business owners if there isn't consistency applied. Right, right. So, uh, plenty, plenty going on. What else are you, what else are you watching on the tax front right now that might have some significant impact, at least on the profession side? Well, I mean, we've always, we've always got issues, um, right now with the international tax. So, you know, we're, we're hearing a lot about the international tax issues. Some of the smaller preparers, aren't factoring in things like the digital economy. Um, they're not factoring in the fact that many of their clients have become self-employed. So, you know, with the gig economy, we've got all of these self-employed people. And then we've got, you know, folks that are getting 1099s. Um, are they getting, how are they getting paid? You know, what about cryptocurrency? Uh, you know, there, there's actually transactions taking place digitally that that how do you track so i mean if you just think about cryptocurrency the irs has come back and said it's you treat it like an asset so every time you exchange it it's like having a sale of a stock but what if you use your cryptocurrency account to buy coffee and to for services you know back and forth every time there's a transaction do you have are we going back to the old capital gains you know schedule d every single thing in and out needs to be tracked mm-hmm. and what's and what's the basis of those assets so that's that's a hot item right now uh, the self employment is a hot item because of like i said the gig economy um, what's happening with the digital services what's happening with people reporting those services if they're going to get those 1099s you know for the multiple transactions that come through right um, that I, that i would say is something we're seeing a lot of also, like I said, the international, and in this this is where the crypto comes in and well is, you know, what if the 
the crypto exchange that you're on is a foreign based. Mm-hmm. So now do you have a foreign re- foreign bank account? Hmm. Do, you have foreign, do you have FR, FinCEN reporting requirements? And yeah. do you want to pay a $10,000 minimum penalty because you didn't file the, you know, the FR forms by the deadline? Um, so it's just things, I, it gets so deep and so convoluted and, and people don't, think about it, right? And right. they don't even think to ask their clients. So you're, you're working for this company, you know, this gig economy company, but it's based out of this country. And, you know, part of your compensation is in crypto, but the crypto is sitting in Italy or it's sitting in China or Russia or wherever it is. So are you self-employed? You know, um, yeah. there are just so many factors that's getting so intertwined. And, you know, and the other thing I'll say that we're a little, people are a little concerned about are the forms. So there's there's been a lot of popular press and the popular press says, we've made tax reform easy for the taxpayer, right? We've mm-hmm. made it easier for the taxpayer, right? It almost, they're making it sound like you won't need your CPA or tax repair anymore because it's a postcard that you fill out. Right. Well, that's true. They have created a postcard. But guess what else they've created? A bunch of additional schedules that explain <laughs> the data that's on the postcard. Right. So, you know, the, the average taxpayer doesn't just go to the postcard and fill it out. They've got to fill out all these additional worksheets. Even a tax preparer, those new worksheets, they have to learn. So I may not have to learn it as the preparer because my input screens on my software will probably look the same. But how about to review that return? So now I've got to spend extra time reviewing that return because I'm not looking at the same schedules I've been looking at for 20, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at, and, and I'm doing air quotes, a simplified form. Right. Right. With eight additional schedules that I've never seen before. Not quite as simple as they make it out to be. Exactly. Um, and, and, and it seems to me, you know, I mean, it, the, the, the time we're living in right now, the, the stuff we, and you, you were talking about cryptocurrencies and, and we, which, which I don't think are, are going away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that, new technologies, new, I mean, just all these, we're dealing with more complexity than we ever have before. And I think it's coming at us faster than our ability or the regulator's ability to, to properly respond. Mm-hmm. And I, some, I, I feel like that's just kind of the new normal. <laughs> this is just kind of the, the way that we're going to have to do business going forward, right? I mean... Yes. It, yes. And, and Bill, what's so funny that you say that is... So I don't think I mentioned this. I'm with the AICPA now, but I was in practice for 20 years. Mm-hmm. I was at EY when they went to. I was at EY in the 90s when they went to digital work papers. Mm-hmm. I was on the rollout team that did that, and it was cutting edge. I mean, we went from having a file room where you had to go, and there was a woman that worked in there, and you had to sign out the client files, right, and take them back to your desk, to a massive scanner where we started scanning files and putting them in PDF and Excel and linking them. Um, you know, to when I started my practice in Austin in 2006, uh, at that point, I was completely cloud-based, paperless, cloud-based servers, everything cloud-based. And I was researching the technology and I was considered ahead of the curve. Well, now that's that's table stakes that you're going to be cloud-based. And, and, right. and the, I've only been out of practice since 2013. And these new technologies that I'm hearing about and that I'm seeing, you know, demonstrated just it just amazes me. Mm-hmm. So you're exactly right. I mean, there was a day when, you know, I guess I, I was on the I was on the cutting edge, and I love that new technology, and I always felt like I was eager to move on to it. But it was a couple years in the making. You know, yeah. it was five, ten years before people were doing what I was doing. Now you can't even wait that long. It's, yeah. you've got to keep up with it. You're right. The pace of change is incredibly fast. Yeah, and 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 
regulators don't seem to. I mean, it, it's it, it and, and granted, it's it's hard <laughs> to to regulate stuff when it's changing constantly. It you know, it um, is. It is. And there are so many factors. I mean, right now we didn't talk about blockchain, hmm. but you know, there are, there are foreign governments that are looking to put things in a blockchain. So their sales and use tax system. And we just talked about sales tax. You know, it, what if, right? These, the, the, the online vendors had some sort of a public blockchain. Hmm. So if you're, if you're an online vendor, you're doing business, Visa, MasterCard, I don't know who the commonality is, who builds this blockchain, but it, you know, everyone's entered into this public blockchain. They, they just pull the tax out. They assess it, they remit it to the states, and it's done. I mean, so the technology is there. I'm not certain how fast our federal government will will move on that, but there are countries that are doing it with real estate property records, you know. So it's, it's there. <laughs> it's coming. That's right. And it is. And I think the other key here too that that I try to say to, to people is yes, I love technology and I really always have, hmm. but um, it's not a it's not a differentiator. So when I was changing, when I decided to go paperless, it differentiated me. It made me stand out. I was able to be more efficient and offer these other services. That's no longer the case because today's customer expects it. Right, right. They want 24-7 access to their information. They want responsiveness, right? They mm-hmm. want digital. Um, that's, that is no longer a, you know, something that just sets you ahead of the competition. It's yes. It's... Required. That's the ground floor, right? That is the ground floor. You're exactly right. Mm-hmm. So, so no, I agree. And I think the key to the practitioners is, you know, don't, don't, I don't believe these things that say, you know, the robots, the robotic process automation, the AI, it's going to put you out of business. No, it is not. It's not putting doctors out of business. It's going to supplement what we do so that we can provide the higher level skills that we've been trained for all these years. Right. right. And those services. We have to work with this technology. Yeah. Yep. That's the challenge. Man, this is so. We could sit here and talk forever uh, about this stuff. We're, we're, and and the complexity, as we said, is is immense. Where can where, where can people go to find more information? So, if I'm going back to just tax reform, I've got to say that the and, and it's our team that does this, so I'm quite proud of it as well. But the AICPA has a tax reform resource center. Um, if you go to AICPA.org, um, tax tax interest area, we actually have a tax reform page. I'm recommending that everybody bookmark that now. Have that ready to go during tax season. It's a page that's you know it's not just an AICPA membership page. There's all of the guidance. There's advocacy. There are podcasts, videos. Um, anytime a new piece of guidance is issued, it goes on that guidance page. So if you want to know one place I can go look where we filter the noise out and say, this is what you need to know. We've got frequently asked questions about tax reform. We've got resources. We've got slides and charts and letters, client letters and all kinds of things they can download, links to articles. So to me, that's a good starting place. Mm-hmm. For that, the IRS has a tax reform or a resource site on the irs.gov site is not a bad place to go. Keep yourself informed. The IRS even does free webcasts. Take advantage of that. And honestly, the big firms, I mean, the major firms, I would say the big four plus maybe, you know, the top, probably the top 10 firms, if you go to their websites, and this applies to tax reform and it applies, I'll say, to tax technology, mm-hmm. is they have those resource centers and they're making that information free. So the podcast, the webcast, the charts, I will say most of them are doing it 
it's it's a sales opportunity. So the material is not directed at educating smaller CPA firms and, and practitioners. It's educated at the bigger firms getting businesses, right? Getting sure, business sure. clients, but it's still educational. Right. And, right. and I think it's worth checking out. Very good. Well, Carrie Weston, thanks for, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to kind of keep us informed about what's happening. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But, but thanks. Thanks for being here. I do appreciate your time. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure visiting with you, Bill. That was Carrie Weston, the AICPA's Director of Taxation. If you want to learn more, you can visit AICPA.org slash tax, or you can uh, also visit MACPA.org slash tax to find out what programs and resources the MACPA is offering to prepare members for tax season and tax legislation and beyond. And please, please, please don't forget to join us on January 24th for CPA Day in Annapolis. With more than 30% of Maryland's General Assembly new to their jobs next year, your input as tax and accounting experts is going to be more important than ever. Uh, This event is free for MACPA members and worth two hours of CPE. Can't beat that. For more information and to register, visit macpa.org slash CPA day.